Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. No president should be able to sustain boots on the ground without congressional approval and without a clear explanation of what the mission is and what the end game is. This isn't really about the economic policy. This is about the coronavirus. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top name. We must use every tool possible to defeat this assault on women's reproductive rights. This is a steady growth that we're seeing here in our economy, you know, over the last three months. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The president left the bubble to make the case for his economic agenda, bringing the road show today to Michigan. And we're about to talk about the president's message with somebody who knows that area and its people well. Congresswoman Haley Stevens, Democrat from Michigan, with more on infrastructure, reconciliation and the debt ceiling all still in the works. Later, the Facebook whistleblower testifies on Capitol Hill. We'll talk with Bloomberg Tech Policy reporter Anna Edgerton about the accusations and the possible implications in legislation. And we'll dig through it all with the panel. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis are with us for the hour. Welcome to the Tuesday edition of Sound On, a day closer to a possible default. So let's start with what we know on the debt ceiling. The standoff between Democrats and Republicans continues as Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer sets up a vote this week on the House bill that would suspend the debt ceiling through December 22. It's likely tomorrow and likely to fail when Republicans filibuster. White House Deputy Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre briefed reporters today on Air Force One as the president flew to Michigan. Here she is. When Democrats opted to go at it alone uh, to get it to get this done, McConnell blocked that as well. So as the president made clear, very clear yesterday, we're no longer asking Republicans to do the right thing. We're just asking them to get out of the way. The aforementioned minority leader Mitch McConnell again says no to acting on the debt ceiling. And while talking about the Biden agenda on the Senate floor, McConnell quotes a Democrat, Senator Joe Manchin. When it comes to the spending plan, here's McConnell. Even some of our colleagues on the Democratic side are calling this craziness what it is. As one of our colleagues said recently, we have to, quote, stabilize what we have before we start going down this expensive road or else it would be, quote, fiscal insanity. That Democrat, Senator Joe Manchin, who himself says he's still negotiating, still not ready to spend trillions on human infrastructure. Here he is. Basically, I'm more concerned about our, our nation and our country turning into a more of an entitlement society versus a rewarding society. So there's a balance to be had here. And that's why President Biden left the Beltway today to talk with regular Americans, in this case, members of the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 324, who have been pushing for the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Here's the president a short time ago. These bills are not about left versus right, or moderate versus progressive, or anything that pits Americans against one another. These bills are about competitiveness versus complacency. They're about opportunity versus decay. 
speaking at a training facility for the local 324, and we're joined by somebody who knows that area very well and its people. Congresswoman Haley Stevens, welcome back to Bloomberg Radio. It's great to have you with us. I'd like to ask you about the president's address today, and then we'll get to some other issues here. But he was talking to this International Union of Operating Engineers that was pushing hard in the last couple of weeks for passage of the bipartisan infrastructure bill. It, of course, did not happen. And they have suggested that jobs are already at risk because of the delay in in making this law. Is that true? Well, it's the classic thing where the American people, American businesses, and most importantly, American workers need certainty. And that is what you get when you get the bills signed into law, passed. you got people all teed up around a big infrastructure package. This country has been waiting for this for a long time, frankly. It's absurd this hasn't been done, you know, three years ago, four years ago. I don't know why it's taken us so long. We obviously had a recovery act under President Obama that uh, started to make a dent on broader infrastructure in the United States of America. But, but this is about certainty, and we're really proud of our operating engineers. These are just fantastic men and women who operate this, the heavy machinery. They're going to be so tied in to uh, this broader infrastructure agenda. And I'm really proud of our president. Um, It's not an easy time right now. He easily could have stayed in Washington. And instead he said, no, I'm going to come to Michigan. I'm going to come to uh, a place, uh, you know, in the, you know, Livingston County, uh, Mm -hmm. flying into the middle of the state and, and talks directly to the American people. And that, that's what he did today. His fourth trip to your state as president And as you just heard, he says these bills are not about left versus right or moderate versus progressive. But aren't they about moderate versus progressive? Wouldn't we have a law otherwise right now? Well, well, look, I I think that we are in um, part of this deal making process where, you know, we're really close to being at the finish line. I I haven't been biting my nails off on this. I want to get it done. I was in Washington last week ready ready to vote on 72 hour notice to, to do that. And, and, and look, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to sidestep your question because you, you did ask, OK, isn't this intertwined? And and part of the deal, you know, how these things get done in the you know top corners with the you know Senate, the House and the White House is they said, hey, we'll do a bipartisan infrastructure bill and then we're going to do our broader budget bill. And, mm-hmm. and and we're, you know, the way I see it, we're doing the you know final components of this. You know, there was. I think a, a, a bigger package, obviously, it was, it was too big to, to get done. But I want to get the daycare piece done. And that's what's in this Build Back Better agenda for for President Biden. And and I'll tell you this, we want to get people back to work. we got to be paving the pathway for people to successfully get back to work. And daycare is component number one. So when the president says, I'm going to ensure that this child tax credit is extended and made permanent that gives families extra money to pay for things like daycare and to pay for things like the the food and the diapers and the on so this is about you know success for hardworking americans and the small businesses who i talk to every single day i do manufacturing monday i just had one yesterday the fantastic battery battery manufacturing company that folks are hiring but they can't get people back to work because of these surrounding impediments. 
and so this is partly what else we have to do. And, yeah. and, and we're, you know, we're there to do it. That's if the International Union of Operating Engineers, though, says last, last week they said pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill, don't just extend transportation uh, spending as, as we saw, uh, surface spending as we saw at the end of last week, because you're putting jobs at risk. How can you tell them to wait on infrastructure uh, when we don't know how long it's going to take for this massive reconciliation plan? That's true, and, and and they're spot on about that. We've got to get this done, and I make sure everyone knows I'm I'm ready to do it. I you know I don't think we should be waiting. I I feel very confident that we've gotten this great bill from the Senate. I you know I've got pieces in this bill that I want to see get done. They're yeah. spot on that we just can't extend generally. So I told my constituents, I said I'm on 72 hours notice to return. <laughs> so you're ready to roll on this said, thing. Let's do it. You're ready to roll yeah, on the biff right now if it came to a vote even without being tied together, it sounds like. Yeah, that's no, that's right. There's, you know, if you're getting into the procedure here, you know, the, the rule has been done. And yeah. uh, that's, you know, it's I, I can't think of a time recently where we've had that. Um, so we, we're, hmm. we're very close to being ready to go here. Mm-hmm. I appreciate your answering that, uh, Congresswoman. And last time we spoke, we, we really dug into the chip shortage and the issue of supply chains in your state of Michigan. We're seeing profit forecasts financial forecasts from the big automakers be lowered uh, by analysts because of the, the the lack of access to materials that we need to build all cars, never mind just EVs. If if this infrastructure bill passed, would there be a component that helped to free up this chip shortage, or is this going to work itself out before we can handle it in, in by way of Washington? Oh, so look, there's legislation with the CHIPS Act, which... Um, needs to be funded uh you know a a provision in in uh you know our national defense authorization that Mm -hmm. has always gone towards chips but what we need is the funding for public private partnership and to again and this is always about certainty for me because a lot of people you know they don't need us in their hair you know if it's the monies the authorized monies that helps and the the laws that just create a framework for folks. This with chips is both, you know, we need a framework. The, you know, the multi-quarter outlook here is that we are going to be in this chips crisis. We're talking, you know, you look at the dollars and cents, you know, across a multitude of industries. I've seen some projections get us up to trillions with automotive, which I'm living and breathing here in Michigan. Sure. We're, we're, We're at billions. Now, when you start to think, okay, well, who's losing billions? It's my hardworking Michigan families, some who are working directly with an OE, but my goodness, those who are with the suppliers. And they, they're bowled over right now. I mean, it's, it's, it's an unbelievable time. I've got people turning down work, turning down purchase orders right. because of this chips crisis. So Yeah, the demand is there. The demand is there. If that bill passed, then in, in the, it's the NDAA you're talking about, a component of that bill that would help to loosen up the chip shortage. You just wonder, though, Congresswoman, we got into this before. It takes so long to build a foundry. It takes so long for for these policies to potentially take effect that you wonder if the market corrects itself before Washington ever gets to it. Well, the market's not going to correct itself unless Washington gives it certainty to invest here in the United States. And I've heard directly from some of these chip manufacturers, you know, I, look, I'm up the street in Livonia, Michigan from Infineon. Okay, <laughs> they have a nice little R&D facility, literally 
I can walk there from my office here in yeah. Michigan. And, and and they're telling me, and Intel's telling me, hey, we need certainty. We, you know, it's a global market here. We've been way too over reliant on foreign markets. People want to create these U.S. jobs. By the way, we've got universities with a lot of this intellectual property. You're spot on about the complexity. You know, in automotive, it's it's a different type of fab there as, as sure. well. But I want to get that chip act done. We're going to get it funded. We've got to do it by the end of the year. Well, we'd like to hear more about that when the time comes. Congresswoman Haley Stevens, Democrat from Michigan. Many thanks for being with us and answering our questions here today on Bloomberg Sound On. You don't get that, you know, from everybody. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. So the president traveled to Howell, Michigan to deliver his message today. He's on his way back. That town right between Lansing and Detroit, the president making the case to union workers. He visited a training facility, as we were just discussing with the congresswoman, that workers to tell them that his spending plans are not just good for them, but good for America. I want to talk about what's fundamentally at stake for our country now, at this moment. I know it's an overused phrase, but I've been using it a lot. We're at an inflection point. Every anywhere from 40 to 80 years in America, there's an inflection point. We have to choose what direction we're going to go, what we're going to do. Not not Democrat, Republican, but what are we going who we're going to be? Which brings me to the headline on the terminal. Biden calls foes of economic plan complicit in U.S. decline. Yeah, Justin Sink and Jenny Leonard from our White House team write. President Biden declared politicians who oppose his economic agenda are undermining the country itself. Let's see how this plays with the panel here. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis are with us. Is that the right message from our Democratic president here, Jeannie, that that they're complicit in undermining the country, or is that a step too far? I do think it is an effective line for him to use. Um, You know, obviously, you you wouldn't want to say that you are complicit if you are only willing to go to $2 trillion versus (laughs) 3.5. But I do think that the argument overall is important, and I think he delivered his message well today. Just look at the comparisons he talked about between spending in things like infrastructure in the United States versus other countries on things like early childhood education. We are in decline when you look at those comparisons, and it's in large part because Washington hasn't got its act together and invested in infrastructure. So I do think that's the message to send. And by the way, it's a message that Republicans and Democrats all support. Donald Trump had a bill for infrastructure. So, you know, this is something that can be widely supported. And I think this is what the president needs to be talking about, not the top line spending number. So I thought today was a good sort of, you know, refocusing of attention Mm -hmm. on his agenda items versus the overall cost. You make a good point. I do hear references every now and then, but people largely forget the size and scale of of former President Trump's proposed uh, infrastructure plan, Rick Davis. Are Republicans complicit in the decline of the United States of America? 
you know, I thought today was like uh, completely uh, blind to what the current political situation is in Washington. He, How come? He, he needs to make friends, not lose them. <laughs> Divide the House, <laughs> unite it. I mean, one, this morning he's talking about uniting the Democratic caucus, and he worked really hard all morning to do it. And then he goes out on the road and gives Republicans five more reasons to not want to support any of his measures, including um, um, the current debt limit. And so, like, if he's get, trying to get Republicans to do business with his administration— uh, this is not the way to do it, to go out and attack them as being complicit in the decline of America. Prior to COVID, the economy was roaring, and, mm. and, and there's no question that he stepped up the COVID response and that, that, that we're coming back. But unemployment is not caused right now because of a decline in America. It's because we, can't, we have a lot of jobs that need to be filled, and we can't find people to fill them. Well, so who was the audience? Was he actually trying to shame Republicans into agreeing with him, Rick? Or was he talking to, to moderate and progressive Democrats to say, see, we don't have them on our side. We need to get together to save the country. Yeah, except like the last interview you just did with uh, Congresswoman Haley Stevens, who says, hey, let's vote on this infrastructure package. Yeah. I got a lot of good stuff in there. And that's a bipartisan package. It came out of the Senate with Republican support. I mean, tomorrow he could have that signing ceremony and the decline of America will start to ebb and, <laughs> and we can all be happy again and, and maybe actually solve the debt crisis. So, I mean, you know, I, I really don't see how this is anything other than sort of a sot to the base, uh, you know, try and make the progressives feel like he's doing war. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't pick up a single vote he doesn't already have. And I guess that's my question. How's he going to go do that? Because he's short on votes to do all of these things that he claims is going to help America grow. That infrastructure bill, Jeannie, that already passed the Senate, my gosh, it been more weeks than we can count ago at this point. It's so close you could taste it. Isn't Rick right? There could be a signing ceremony tomorrow. There could, except they can't get it through the House, and so there won't be a signing ceremony until they make progress on reconciliation, and, and that's obviously what they're focused on. But I think, you know, the Republicans have been very clear in Congress when it comes to reconciliation, they are not getting on board, at least as far as we know at this minute, when it comes to raising or suspending the debt ceiling, they are not getting on board. So I don't think the president is trying to reach out and get Republicans on board for either of those things. I think what he is trying trying to do is send a larger message. It's quite frankly what the same one he's been sending since he ran for office, which is that the nation's infrastructure, whether hard or human, is crumbling and you compare it to how other nations are investing and moving forward, we are behind. We are in decline. We need to do this. We need to move this forward. So I do think it's an important message to send to the American public, because let's not forget, you look at the poll numbers on the agenda items, and these things are widely supported across the board. But he's not going to get the support of Mitch McConnell and Republicans in the Senate on either of those things. Can't even get him on the debt ceiling, Rick. I, Mitch McConnell voted for the bipartisan infrastructure package. That he already got his point. vote. I mean, how like many, many times are you going to have to go back and, and delay this? The people who are holding up his package are people in his own party, not Republicans. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1 to New York, Bloomberg 1130 to Boston. Bloomberg 1061 to San Francisco. Bloomberg 960 to the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. And around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew. Headline on the terminal. Whistleblower decries Facebook's free pass for bad behavior. You may have seen her on 60 Minutes 
Francis Haugen, a former product manager at Facebook, testified today on Capitol Hill, sat before the Senate Commerce Committee describing internal research she says proves Facebook put profit before safety and hurt the mental health of its youngest users. We'll hear from her and we'll talk about it with Bloomberg Tech Policy reporter Anna Edgerton. It's one thing to talk to Scott Pelley sitting down alone in a controlled set, good lighting, makeup. It's another thing to sit before a congressional committee, albeit a friendly one. But that was the reality today for Francis Haugen, the Facebook whistleblower. Yesterday we saw Facebook get taken off the internet. I don't know why it went down, but I know that for more than five hours, Facebook wasn't used to deepen divides, destabilize democracies, and make young girls and women feel bad about their bodies. Tough. This is the woman who leaked internal documents she claims showing Facebook knew about the worst of its influences on young people, among many others, and in fact made it worse, she said, when Facebook changed its algorithm in 2018. The company intentionally hides vital information from the public, from the U.S. government, and from governments around the world. The documents I have provided to Congress prove that Facebook has repeatedly misled the public about what its own research reveals about the safety of children, the efficacy of its artificial intelligence systems, and its role in spreading divisive and extreme messages. There's a lot there, and writing about it for us today and now talking with us on Bloomberg Sound On is Bloomberg Tech Policy reporter Anna Edgerton. This was a pretty big moment for Facebook here, Anna. A lot of people, of course, are wondering if it's if it's going to be more than talk and a chance for politicians to go to the stakeout and say what they need to say about Facebook, or if this actually results in some new regulations, meaningful change. What's your view? Well, that's an excellent question, and I would argue the question today. And there are a few proposals that were already been introduced in Congress, things that would uh, strengthen privacy regulations for Internet companies that would revoke some of the liability protections that online platforms enjoy, or in some cases for some of the antitrust legislation that that would actually break up these big tech companies. Now, that legislation hasn't really gone too far right, you know, as we speak now. But I do think that this is a moment that will give some more momentum to those and really kind of bring people together across the aisle. Whether or not those bills can get floor time and kind of get through the legislative process is another question. I don't want to pull you into the uh, into this actual debate here. And I know you're a journalist, but is 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 what this woman is saying about Facebook true? Do we have reason to believe those internal documents are in fact real? Yeah, and Facebook hasn't said much about the internal documents. You know, they haven't pushed back to say that they were not true. They've just said that they weren't representative of what Facebook knows. Now, we do know that she delivered more than a thousand documents, not only to Congress and to the Wall Street Journal, who first reported on this, but also to the Securities and Exchange Commission, alleging that Facebook misled not only Congress and the public, but also investors. So this could turn into a much bigger deal for Facebook as a company, not just as a platform for you. I saw a statement from Facebook following the testimony. It came from a spokesman named Joe Osborne. He put it on Twitter and says today a, a Senate hearing with a former product manager at Facebook who worked for the company for less than two years. And they've been eager to point that out, had no direct reports, never attended a decision point meeting with a C-level executive, testified more than six times to not working on the subject matter in question. I don't even need to finish the statement here, Anna. They're clearly trying to discredit this woman. 
Yeah, and I think that's actually not the best strategy for Facebook to push back on these allegations because in some areas she was speaking from her own expertise, especially when she's talking about the civic misinformation team that she worked on. But she also had this trove of documents that documented Facebook's own internal research on things like the mental health risks for teen girls using their Instagram platform. So she wasn't speaking from her own experience on all of these issues. She delivered Facebook's own documents. So, you know, it's kind of a hard thing to dismiss when you have the, you know, the, the, these very kind of thorough-seeming reports that were poured over by the Wall Street Journal and by members of Congress. Yeah, it's it's pretty remarkable as we go on to read uh, the rest of this statement here. It's been 25 years, Facebook writes, since the rules for the Internet have been updated. They're asking for... Uh, the creation of standard rules for the Internet. In other words, I presume, why are you just looking at us, Anna? Well, I mean, they have a good point. It is up to Congress to kind of set the rules of the road, but you have to wonder what Facebook's final objective is in that. You know, if regulations are written a certain way, they could end up entrenching some of the already dominant players like Facebook. So um, I've spoken with a few of the senators who said they appreciate Facebook's public campaign in favor of stricter Internet regulations. When it comes to actually crafting legislation, they haven't gotten much engagement from Facebook in terms of really pouring over how this would work. Well, it's interesting because, you know, we heard from uh, the chair of the committee, uh, Senator Blumenthal, and he's saying, you know, we're seeing underneath the hood for the first time in Facebook. Really, we've been we've been trying to get our hands on this information. Do lawmakers know enough to act on? Is there enough information they understand without Facebook bringing them on a tour through, you know, their secret files here to do something about it? That was one of the central points that Francis Hagen, the whistleblower, tried to make was that it's hard for Congress to legislate, to regulate an industry that they can't see. You know, she uh, likened it to regulating the automobile industry if you had never seen a car. You know, a lot of yeah. times the way that this, these platforms work is not transparent for anyone outside the company. And even outside researchers who understand these issues very well don't have access to the same level of data that Facebook does. We did hear from Senator Blumenthal after the hearing where he said that there needs to be a lot more information from Facebook turns over to the Congressional Committee. They're willing to use their subpoena power to get it. And he also wants Mark Zuckerberg to come in and testify before <laughs> the Consumer Protection Subcommittee. I'm guessing he won't wear a hoodie uh, to that one. Anna Edgerton, great work. Great to have you with us. Bloomberg Tech Policy Reporter. This is why you read the terminal. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Searching Facebook right now. See if Rick and Jeannie are on here. All right. Looks like a yes for Jeannie, not so much for Rick. Unless, well, there's a burner account, I guess. Although, wait, I see it. I see one now. I hope this doesn't get me in trouble. A page in search of all those lucky enough to be dubbed Rick Davis and all those admiring our Rick Davisness. My way of reassembling the panel here. Jeannie Shanzano, and yes, Rick Davis, Bloomberg Politics Contributors, and so I will start with you here, Rick. Uh, by the way, congratulations if you've avoided all of this for so many years. You've seen a lot of testimony on a lot of issues. This one, Facebook, has actually drawn relatively bipartisan support. Is that because Facebook is big tech, which is a great target for both sides of the aisle, or because we all have kids somewhere who could be impacted by this? 
Oh, I think all of the above. And just for the record, I am not on Facebook. Good man. Uh, I don't know what that was that you were reading, but I'm now <laughs> going to look it up. Uh, the uh, th- this is this is what's amazing about this debate is that it, you could literally write a novel about all the different issues that are at stake here, right? And it's kind of like tobacco, seatbelts, and opioids mm. all in the same company. Could mm. you only imagine, right? I mean, <laughs> uh, the the and and it's and it's bipartisan because. Every one of these issues affects, as you point out, everybody's family, and everybody uh, in Congress uh, is is directly affected on it because they do have Facebook accounts and they do wonder, you know, what are they being subjected to? And they all have been through the ringer in the yeah. last few election cycles, and it, it's time to stop the merry-go-round. And I think this is what you're seeing. You see. Uh, you know, senators like Ed Markey and Marsha Blackburn, who honestly see <laughs> nothing in the same light, right. are completely in sync on what's going on with big tech and the need for reform. Remarkable to watch that. And of course, you remember we had Marsha Blackburn on last week, just a very different tone on this issue, uh, Jeannie. But there's an urgency, it seems, behind this. I just wonder for a body that can't even get money to fix crumbling bridges, how do we deal with Facebook? Oh, that's the big question. Um, you know, I, I thought listening to this testimony today, um, you know, and of course her interviews on 60 Minutes, it was, you know, a, a moment, that a real reckoning for Facebook because, of course, this is coming from inside. This is like one of those horror movies where they are coming from inside the house. And that <laughs> is what always, always brings these types of, you know, reckonings and organizations to task. And so I think this was a big moment. And I think it'll continue to be. The one thing I would say, though, and this is where I'm not confident we're going to see regulation in the near term, is that Democrats and Republicans have, you know, similar views of Facebook for very and social media in general for very different reasons. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think they're having difficulty figuring out how to move forward on top of the fact, as we saw with Blumenthal and others, they don't quite understand. And you were just talking about this with Anna. They don't quite understand these platforms and neither do many of us. But, you know, Republicans see this as, you know, they've been discriminating against conservatives versus Democrats see it in terms of the unhealthy impact on individuals and and democracy as a whole. That would require very different sort of regulatory platforms and approaches. And I I have difficulty imagining how they get there this year or if Republicans take over either House or body next year. So I am not confident we see regulation in the short term. What do you make of that, Rick? And and Jeannie is on to something there. Does it matter if the, the left and right come after Facebook for different reasons or does it just matter that they're both that there's a common foe? Oh, I think there's something for everybody in here. And I think the point that Jeannie was making, which I think is critically important, is the lack of understanding about how these platforms like Facebook operate. But you've got a Pied Piper now. I mean, Francis Hogan gave the committee probably more information in one day than they've received in a decade from Facebook. And she explained it in a way that everybody can understand an algorithm for a change. And I think these are the kinds of moments that tend to crystallize support for getting something done in Congress. And I think that that now you're going to see uh, uniting in an effort behind uh, Republicans and Democrats alike to start to legislate uh, around this. And it's not going to be what Facebook is advertising. You know, they're out there saying, oh, gosh, you know, we need government regulation. Well, buddy. You're going to get it. Here it comes. (laughs) Careful what you ask for. Take it from Rick Davis. As we turn from Facebook, and this is a story we're going to we're going to stay on here because it just impacts so many people, so many of our listeners for 
for different reasons. Investing, maybe you, maybe you have a kid. I'm guessing your grandparents are even on this thing. It doesn't really matter how old you are or where you're coming from. It's an important story that we want to cover for you. Just like the Fed, and this is uh, the ultimate Bloomberg sound on story here is the Fed meets Capitol Hill. Enter Elizabeth Warren. Mr. President, I rise today to express concern about a culture of corruption among top officials at the Federal Reserve. Takes to the floor to pull out the hammer on Jay Powell. And as I read on the terminal, Biden says he has confidence in Powell after Warren broadside. David Weston just sat down with Senator Warren. He's doing balance of power from Washington, D.C. this week in a great series of broadcasts planned, including this interview. Listen to Warren said about this to David Weston today on Bloomberg. So what I want to see now is a Fed chair who cares about both parts of the job. Monetary policy, very important, but willingness to regulate giant financial institutions, equally important. Warren said in her floor speech this morning, not terribly long, 10 minutes or something, that Powell had failed as a leader. Joe Biden was asked about it on his visit to Michigan, asked if he supports Powell. He said, first of all, yes, and went on to speak to his confidence in the Fed's integrity and in Powell. Jeannie, is this another one of these issues where it's good politics for Elizabeth Warren to come out ahead of any potential renomination for Jay Powell? Or is she really trying to change the makeup of this body starting at the top? I think she has shown for much of her career in Washington and elsewhere before that she is intent on, on reconfiguring, on remaking this body. And I was struck by the fact that she has now sort of morphed her criticism or it's broadened it from just solely regulation. Now it is, uh, you know, focused increasingly on the issue of ethics. And I think she, it's not just Elizabeth Warren. She is reflecting what we're hearing from many progressives. They are concerned concerned about several factors, regulation, ethics, also the fact that if Powell was to stay in place, it could potentially mean that four of the seven board members, a majority would be Republican appointees, which they see as incredibly dangerous over the next several years, particularly given how Republicans may be making inroads in Congress and or the White House, who knows, in 2024. And so they are intent on making this change now before we get to that point. This has to do with these uh, the, the trading issues, right? The leaders of the Dallas and Boston Fed banks, Rick Davis, they announced their retirements just last week uh, after internal documents show they've been trading stocks and, and some other investments while in the act of setting monetary policy in the depths of the pandemic. That is a non-starter for Elizabeth Warren. Why not just reinforce the trading rules, though? Yeah, I, I really think that this is uh, a lot of a lot of smoke, but not a lot of fire. Uh, I mean, if I didn't know that the White House wasn't that organized, I'd think this was a brilliant move on their part to stoke up Elizabeth Warren, get her to go after Powell so that Biden could take this very ethical approach to putting Powell back in the job and look like he's distanced himself from, you know, the progressives on his party at a no cost benefit to the uh, to the White House. I mean, it honestly sets up perfectly for Joe Biden. I mean, there's no reason why he shouldn't reappoint the chairman and and look like he's actually being independent and a little more moderate than frankly what the what the progressives are trying to drive him to so uh, yes I think they got to clean up their internal act I think Elizabeth Warren does point out 
uh, some vulnerabilities that uh, the Fed have. I mean, come on, guys. Uh, even Congress is starting to stop trading on things they vote on. I mean, I know that yeah. sounds crazy, but uh, I think it's time for, for everybody to start thinking about these kinds of issues in, in, the, in the environment we live in today. So what should the policy be? And I'd, I'd be curious, Jeannie, to hear you uh, weigh in on that, 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 that perceived strategy by Biden to kind of reinforce his his moderate credentials, but should there just be a flat policy? You can't own any individual securities, period. That's not uncommon. Uh, by the way, for people who cover business uh, for a living, who cover the financial markets for a living, that that's kind of par for the course, Jeannie. Yeah, I think many people hearing this would probably stun to imagine, as Rick just said, that this hasn't happened already. I mean, this is, you know, cannot own, certainly cannot trade when you're in this kind of position, making this kind of policy. And, you know, you talk about, you know, Donald Trump's old, you know, drain the swamp kind of thing. This is what lends credence to those kinds of ideas. And, you know, I, I would you know, maybe a few months ago have thought that Biden wanted to shore up his moderate credentials. But given what he's had to deal with on infrastructure and is, I think, you know, move quite clearly in the progressive direction, I'm not so sure he's going to withstand this onslaught by progressives on this. I thought he would, and we still know he says publicly he supports Powell, but I think he's going to feel a lot of pressure on this. And let's not forget, they are also talking about the lack of diversity and that is a real concern and should be a real concern for everybody. Well, I'll tell you what, Rick, we only have a couple seconds left here. Not that many lawmakers appear to be weighing in or really leaning into this. Is that because they don't want their own trading policy? Uh, yeah, I think that uh, they don't like this story because they've been burned on it before themselves. And uh, yet there are a lot of members of the Republican Party on the banking committee who have come out for PAL. So I think there's a balance here and we're starting to see it uh, you know, uh, start to occur. Rick Davis, Jeannie Shanzano, the best in the business on the fastest hour in politics. I'm Joe Matthew. Meet you back here tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.